Wait, what? So this happened. I'm Rachel Vallesnor, and this is the podcast Hell is Not the End. Although it feels like just the beginning sometimes. Is anything really the end, though? This podcast is meant to explore the limitless possibilities of one's own soul. Why do people do bad things? Why are there countless happenings beyond understanding? Why, when we are cautioned not to do something, do we just do it anyway? The definition of curiosity, a strong desire to know or learn something. There you have it. I will curiously explore why. Hell is not the end. In 1959, nine hikers out of an original ten formed a skiing expedition in hopes to ski across the northern Ural Mountains, or also known as just the Urals. The Urals run north to south in western Russia. The Urals would be the place of a very mysterious incident known as the Dyatlov Pass incident. The group was a very experienced trekking group, all from the Ural Polytechnic Institute. They had established a camp on the slopes of Koetsiakl, located on the northern Ural region of Russia. Translation of this Russian mountain is Dead Mountain. Yeah, sounds super safe. This area is now named after the leader of their expedition, Igor Dyatlov, Dyatlov Pass. On January 23, 1959, the group sets out on their expedition, the same day that they were approved to go out and were issued their route book. The group was led by 23-year-old radio engineering student Igor Dyatlov, who assembled the group from students and peers of the university. Each member of the group was a grade 2 hiker, indicating the difficulty and danger level of the hiker's discipline. Upon their return, their certifications would be escalated to grade 3. At the time, that was the highest certification available in the Soviet Union. The route was designed by Dyatlov at the vicinity of upper streams of Lazva River, a river in Sverdlovsk Oblast in the Ural Federal District. Their route was approved by the Sverdlovsk City Route Commission of the Sverdlovsk Committee of the Physical Culture and Sport. The goal of this expedition was to reach Gora Utorten. The group arrived by train in Ivdel, a town in the center of northern province of Sverdlovsk Oblast, in the early morning hours of January 25, 1959. Then took a truck to Vizhai, a lorry village that is the last inhabited settlement to the north. While spending the night in Vizhai, the skiers purchase and eat loaves of bread to build up their energy for the next day's hike. On January 27, 1959 from Vizhai, they begin their trek to Gora Otorten. On January 28, 1959, this would-be tenth member of the expedition needed to turn back due to several health complications. On January 31st, the group arrives at the edge of the highland area and began to prepare for their climbing. In a wooded valley, they store their food and equipment that are to be used for their return trip. On February 1st, the hikers begin to move through the pass. They plan to get over the pass and make camp on the opposite side for the next night. Due to snowstorms moving in and not letting up, their course leads them farther west than intended. Very poor visibility aided them in losing their direction. When they realize their mistake, the group stops and sets up camp right on the slope of the mountain. Dead mountain. Instead of moving just under a mile down the mountain to a wooded area that would have offered more of a shelter in such horrible weather. 
Before the group set off on their expedition, Igor Dyatlov had agreed to send a telegram to their sports club just as soon as they had returned back to Vizhai. The sports club expected word from Dyatlov no later than February 12th. When the 12th came and went, there was an immediate panic. It was not uncommon for expeditions such as this to be delayed. The would-be 10th member was told by Dyatlov himself when he had to depart for health reasons that he expected the trip to go longer than the 12th. By the time February 20th came around, family members and the head of the Ural Polytechnic Institute insist that rescue efforts begin. Students and teachers volunteer, as well as Soviet Union police and army with planes and helicopters later joining the efforts. On February 26th, the search efforts find what appears to be an abandoned campsite and badly damaged tent on Dead Mountain. The campsite did not make any sense to the search party. The tent was half torn down and covered with snow. It was empty of any group members, but all their belongings along with their shoes were all left behind. Investigators state that the tent had been cut open from the inside. Nine sets of footprints can be followed leading down towards the end of the nearby woods, onto the opposite side of the pass. The footprints presented some may have been wearing only socks or a single shoe or were barefoot. After 500 meters, the tracks are covered in snow. Under a large pine tree at the forest edge, the searchers find visible signs of a fire. Here they find the bodies of two members of the group, shoeless and only in their underwear. Branches of the pine tree were broken roughly 16 feet above the ground, indicating that someone had climbed the pine tree, possibly to figure out where they were, where the camp was, and the rest of the group was. Between the pine and the camp, three more bodies were found, probably attempting to return to the camp. Investigators stating their bodies seemed to be posed, that they were returning to the camp, as they were separate but traveling the same direction. Finding the remaining four group members would take more than another two months. Their bodies were located on May 4th under 13 feet of snow in a ravine, 246 feet away from the pine tree. Three of the four group members were dressed better than the others. There were signs that indicated those who died would have gotten the clothes from the ones that had died first. One was wearing burnt pants that belonged to one of the others, and her foot and shin was wrapped in a torn jacket. A legal inquest started immediately after finding the first five bodies. The medical examiner would find no physical trauma on the bodies that would indicate a reason for their deaths. It was concluded they had, they had died of hyperthermia. One of the bodies had a crack in his skull, but this was not believed to be contributing factor in his death. However, the four bodies found in May steers an investigation in another direction. Three out of four bodies had obvious fatal injuries. One of the bodies had severe skull injuries, and two out of the four bodies had major chest injuries. According to one of the examiners, for these bodies to have suffered such damage, the force must have been excessive, comparable to a car crash. Noting that none of the bodies had external injuries that would implicate bone fractures, but instead is suggesting that they had been subjected to a very high level of pressure. All four bodies found in the ravine at the bottom of a creek in a running stream of water, under that 13 feet of snow, 
all had soft tissue damage to their heads and faces. One body was missing a tongue. Eyes are part of their lips, missing facial tissue, and a fragment of skull bone. One body was missing both eyeballs, and another body missing his eyebrows. A forensic expert would state that the soft tissue damage happened post-mortem due to the bodies being stuck in the stream. Early speculation that indigenous reindeer herders in the area may have been involved, possibly attacking the group for encroaching on their land. Several people were interrogated, but the nature of their deaths did not support this. Temperatures were very low and the bodies were only partially dressed. One wrapped in clothes that appeared to have been cut off of the other dead bodies. The inquest is officially closed at the end of May 1959. All group members have died of a compelling natural force. The files are sent to a secret archive. In 1997, negatives and journals were revealed from a secret archive from one of the group members' cameras found on the site. The film was donated to the Dyatlov Foundation. The journals would enter Russia's public domain in 2009. On April 12, 2018, one of the bodies with a major chest injury was exhumed, brought on by suspicion of journalists. More than one result was obtained. One report would state that the chest injuries resembled being hit by a car, while the other contested the DNA of the body not matching any of his relatives, not being sure they had even exhumed the correct member of the group. His name was not even on record as being buried there. Still deciding to reconstruct his face, it matched reports of post-war photographs. Although more suspicion by journalists implicated that someone else was living under his name after World War II. Needless to say, any real information gathered would remain inconclusive. In February 2019, an investigation would be reopened by Russian authorities only looking into natural disasters and nothing criminal. As there were many theories on what actually happened, one theory was that the group waking up in a panic due to an avalanche striking the tent while they were all asleep. The avalanche having covered the entrance of the tent, the group would cut the tent from the inside to escape. This would account for the group being poorly dressed. Only when thinking the danger had passed and trying to return to their tent and campsite, they lost their way in the darkness and froze to death. Seeing as the bodies were scattered and all in different states of undress, it's either at some point the four found in the ravine made it back to the campsite and retrieved some clothes, or they had not been in the tents at the time of the avalanche. But seeing as the last four found were stuck under 13 feet of snow, was it a separate avalanche? The fact that those four were dressed better makes no sense, as it would be assumed they lived longer. Or did they? Enter the Conspiracy Corner.
Contradictory evidence stated that there were no patterns in the snow left by an avalanche. A study of the area would also conclude it was unlikely spot for an avalanche. An analysis of the terrain indicated where the tent location was. It indicated an avalanche would have passed over the tent, but since the tent collapsed from the side and not the top, this wasn't probable. Since they were experienced trekkers and skiers, camping where they did would be unlikely. The footprints indicated a normal pattern of walking and not of an escape. The same pattern, however, would indicate this exact opposite. The tent's location wouldn't be set up where it was by an experienced group, void of any type of shelter in a snowstorm. Between 2015 and 2019, Investigative Committee of the Russian Federation's findings would intensively review the incident from 1959, strongly concluding an avalanche being the case. One thing that was not considered in 1959 was how harsh the winds could have been, maybe even a hurricane. Gusts of hurricane winds and snowstorms causing the avalanche, erecting the tent without natural barriers, heavy snowfall, wind and frost. The tent being dug into the snow base leaving it vulnerable to sliding fresh snow from the slope, gradually weighing down on the entrance of the tent, leading them to cut the tent from the inside to escape. Instead of the group staying together to get to the edge of the forest border for protection, the group separated, since some of them were better dressed than others. Other theories include catabatic winds, rare winds that can be extremely violent. In 1978, Eight hikers were victims of catabatic winds in Sweden and posed similar conditions to both incidents. Infrasound was another theory. Infrasound is when the wind creates a vortex and the sound has the capability to cause panic attacks in humans. Perhaps the hikers panicked by the sound and fled by any means necessary and fled in different directions, not keeping track of each other. Military tests was another. Military parachutes landing on the site the soldiers stealing their clothes and collapsing their tent. This one seems super far-fetched in this case. I think that as soon as all the files were released, all was up for opinionated scenarios. Since there are no clear facts, the mind always has the tendency to explore what-ifs. Since the original files from the original investigation were suppressed in a secret archive, of course, domestic concealment and cover-ups would be an easy theory to believe. Paradoxical undressing is another. It's where hypothermia sets in and makes the body feel like your body is burning in warmth. Since six out of the nine died from hypothermia, this would explain why they wouldn't be adding any layers. Many researchers have chimed in with their theories, many of them plausible but not sure how factually likely, since no one really knows. Of course, animal attacks could easily be a theory. Many researchers that inspected the land trying to recreate what happened had encountered wildlife. Why not wildlife? I got it. I figured it out. It was a yeti. Mystery solved. Case closed. I will call him Maury. My hope is that no one has to live in fear. Ever. As always, I will never give up. And read the signs. Special thanks to all the reading materials I could get my hands on, internet mostly. Thanks to wikipedia.org. And also, one last note, if I have pronounced anything incorrect in any of my episodes, I apologize. Thanks so much for listening. 
I'm Rachel Vallisnor, and this is the podcast, Hell is Not the End. <laughs>